0: welcome to real review a podcast to help you decide for yourself if a movie or tv show is worth your time money and energy with real one zoe will break down the nuts and bolts minus spoilers of course and with real two she'll invite you into a conversation about the narrative characters background and the power of story here's real two i always come back Zoe here with you on Real FM, and that's a little inside joke, a line from the movie Five Nights at Freddy's, which is the topic of today's conversation. But first, a disclaimer. The topics and themes of Five Nights at Freddy's franchise are not family-friendly. In fact, I make a whole point about it later in this episode. The themes are mature, dark, and serious, and what I'm covering today is not suitable for all listeners. I will be referencing tough subjects related to depression, suicide, trafficking, and murder. If any of these topics are triggering for you, I advise you not to listen. The Five Nights at Freddy's film is rated PG-13, but that doesn't mean everyone 13 and up is ready for that material. Now let's get started. In real 1, I described this film as having horror elements, but not being a horror film. I think that's a great way to describe the movie, and it makes me laugh seeing how critics are so befuddled by this film. A lot of criticism from the quote-unquote professional critics say the film isn't even that scary. The plot has too much plot and nothing makes sense. And these comments just make me roll my eyes because that describes FNAF. That is Five Nights at Freddy's. Not that scary, tons of mysterious lore that might not make sense, and all the memes. This movie wasn't made for the critics. It was made for people who love FNAF. Blumhouse, the studio which produced this film, is known for other successful low-budget horror films. The CEO, Jason Blum, stated before the film's release that they made this movie for the fans. It would be nice if people are introduced to the franchise through the film, but they aren't looking to please everyone. And you know what? I think it paid off. Not only are the fans pleased with the long-anticipated film, but the Five Nights at Freddy's film grossed $80 on opening weekend, and the film's budget was only $20 million. It made its money back four times, and there's a rumor that a sequel is already in pre-production. Now, full disclosure, I consider myself a part of the FNAF fandom. I love this goofy franchise, and I get it, it's a weird one. There's colorful animatronics possessed by dead kids. It is both horribly tragic and mysterious, and it doesn't take itself too seriously. And that's what I love about it. The mystery, the chase for answers in the story, the self-deprecating humor at times, the design of the world these characters live in, and it's full of sci-fi supernatural elements. And a huge part of why FNAF became so popular is because of the internet. Gamers on YouTube doing let's plays, streamers reacting to jump scares, and eventually internet sleuths finding the mysterious clues to the game's hidden story. And for me, something that adds a lot of value to this franchise and why I love it so much is its creator, Scott Cawthon. Scott began his video game career making kids Christian-themed video games. He is a devout Christian himself and was self-funded. His early video games include Pilgrim's Progress in 2012 and The Desolate Hope in 2012. Pilgrim's Progress was a game modeled after the religious allegory book of the same name, while Desolate Hope is a sci-fi dystopian story about a coffee pot trying to rescue a baby being experimented on. Already in these early games, you can see Scott's sci-fi style, which we find later in the FNAF games, and some of the same themes—protecting children. In fact, it was because Desolate Hope seemed to have a pro-life message that he received some backlash. During these early years in his video game career, his faith was shaking. Those two games weren't doing so well, didn't get good critical reviews, and didn't make a lot of money. He decided to stop making Christian-centered video games, and he turned to making cheap computer games or free-to-play mobile games, which amounted to about 40 or 50 bucks a month. So he had to work retail to provide for his family. In 2013, Scott created a family-friendly game called Chipper and Sons Lumber Co., which did horribly. He was ridiculed, raked over the coals for these anthropomorphic character designs looking unintentionally creepy, uncanny valley. One person described the beaver's design as looking like a scary animatronic. You know, like the ones you see at Chuck E. Cheese. Scott hit his lowest point and entered a crisis of faith. He is quoted with saying, either God didn't exist or God hated me. He battled severe depression, and after confiding in a doctor about his suicidal thoughts, his life insurance policy was revoked, canceled. Now even his death was worthless. Scott wondered why he was a video game developer. Why was he bothering with all this work? It was all so useless and pointless. He begged God to use him somehow. And that's when he decided to take the criticism from Chippy and Son's Lumbering Co., the look of those creepy animatronics, and make a whole game based on it. That's when he created Five Nights at Freddy's, a video game with four creepy-looking anthropomorphic animatronic mascots in a family pizzeria kinda like Chuck E. Cheese, but haunted and disturbing. He gave them exactly what the critics told him. He made a horror game where you play as a security guard stuck sitting at a desk with several security cameras and you have to survive till 6am for a whole work week, five nights. That should be easy, right? On the first night, you could say, the first level of the game, you get these work instructions from a phone call. The guy on the phone tells you that the animatronics free roam the pizzeria at night to keep their metal joints working, and they might try to stuff you, the security guard, into one of those mascot suits because they won't recognize you as a human but as an endoskeleton. Okay, already this is starting to get really bizarre, but you as the player are basically fighting off these animatronics all night for five nights. If the animatronic gets you, there's a loud sound effect with a corresponding jump scare. In August 2014, this game was released and gained a ton of success, grew in popularity, it had creepy atmosphere, incredible design, and this unique gameplay. One reason for why it blew up so much on YouTube and increased its popularity and success was because it stood out from the indie horror game competition at the time. For a little bit of context, there had been some creepy indie horror games YouTubers were playing, like Slenderman, Amnesia, and Outlast, but all of them had you moving around in the environment. This was very different to Five Nights at Freddy's where you're stuck in a claustrophobic, gross-looking office staring at monitors and having to fend off these animatronics that were constantly trying to get you. Not only was FNAF standing out from the crowd thanks to this gameplay, but it had iconic jump scares that made YouTubers literally scream and jump, making audiences join in the fun. And you wondered, how long can they last? Will they make it another night? What's all this weird mystery surrounding the game? Five missing kids? Scott wisely jumped on the success and immediately made a sequel game and continued churning out game after game. As of today, there are nine main games and four additional spin-off games. Not only that, but due to the popularity of the game and how easy games like this are to construct, people began making their own fan games based on the Five Nights at Freddy's franchise. And Scott knew that this only made his franchise more popular. And instead of rejecting this and saying, hey, you shouldn't be doing that, this is my copyrighted material, he embraced the community. According to the FNAF wiki page, quote, the Fazbear Fanverse Initiative, also known simply as Fazbear Fanverse, is a collaboration by Scott Cawthon and creators of popular Five Night at Freddy's fan games, first announced on August 21, 2020. This project is, in Scott's own words, a giant collaboration involving several fan game creators who have made some of the most popular fan games over the years here in the community. It's a project that's designed to invest into those franchises, give back to the developers, and hopefully bring new entries to those franchises as well." End quote. He supported his community, he continued to give back, and there was a constant stream of Five Nights at Freddy's content, from the games to the books, fan art. But what is this all even about? After the first video game, people started theorizing and looking for answers to questions like who was the phone guy? Who do we play as? Why on earth would anyone design animatronics to unintentionally murder employees? That's weird. As each game came out, more lore was sprinkled through mini-games you could unlock, depicting events in 8-bit video game style. And soon, the YouTube community tried putting the pieces together to come up with some cohesive narrative to explain all of these things. Now there are a ton of theories. But here's loosely what the community agrees upon. The pizzeria was owned by a man named William Afton, and he had a business partner named Henry Emily. Yeah, his last name is apparently Emily. Together, they had a sprawling restaurant franchise called Freddy's, where animatronic mascots donned the stages and delighted children. They had cutting-edge technology, and kids loved them. Tragically, an older brother tried pulling a prank on his younger brother by shoving his head into one of the animatronic mouths. The mouth snapped shut causing the infamous bite of 83. Once thought to be the bite of 87, it's confusing. In any case, this crying child passed away and he was likely the son of William Afton. William wanted to bring his son back to life and began experimenting with the connection between souls, human emotion, and the possession of objects. This is theorized to be the reason why William Afton began luring kids into the back room of his restaurant dressed in the infamous yellow bunny springlock suit. The children ended up possessing the animatronics he put them into, and he could manipulate them. All of this insanity was in some attempt to bring life back, to make his family whole again. But I also think this was an excuse for him to play God with the lives of innocents, and he was a mad scientist, mad serial killer. And one of his victims was Henry's daughter, Charlotte. There is a ton of tragedy, so much more to this story that I could dive into, but a lot of this narrative doesn't even come directly from the video games. It's never explicitly depicted, other than a few key scenes like in the 8-bit mini-games, you know, the yellow bunny luring the kids, or the bite. But primarily, the narrative of these games is composed of theories, pulling evidence together from clues in the games, the mini-games, the dialogue, character names, and the books. The books have played a huge role in trying to make sense of the video game's mysterious lore, but I do want to point out that the books, and there are a lot of them, 28 of them, some being novels and some being a collection of short stories, are regarded as being a parallel universe, not directly the same canon as the games. Because of this, we can only continue to make theories for the games with books as tentative evidence. A lot of people begun to realize, myself included, that Scott probably didn't have a story when he first made the game. The first game was a reaction to Chippy and Sons. It was ironic, tongue in cheek. Oh, you didn't like my family friendly game? Told me it looked like creepy animatronics? Well here, here's a literal game with creepy animatronics to scare you in a family friendly restaurant. And then, as it got so popular, Scott kept making more, the fandom increased, the community began theorizing, and I think at some point, as he made the games, maybe around game two or three, he put together a story. But the story grew and changed as the games kept happening, as the theories kept popping up. And because of this, there's a ton of confusion, unanswered questions, things that seem to contradict each other, and nobody knows what the real story is from start to finish. And I don't think we'll ever know. I don't know if the fanbase wants to know because the chase for answers, the journey, is the fun part. But as Scott was starting to lay out his story, the mad scientist serial killer and the children possessed animatronics, I think you can see some tragic themes that are consistent throughout. Loss. The need to protect kids. And I think this is more clearly expressed in the film. Before I move on to discuss the film in more depth, I want to wrap up this background section on Scott Cawthon and the Five Nights at Freddy's franchise with a healthy dose of criticism to balance everything out. I know I'm a fan of this franchise, so obviously I am biased when it comes to this and the movie, but I want to make something very clear. The themes of the games, and the books, and now the movie, are dark and disturbing. Children being murdered and stuffed into animatronics is not what I would ever consider child-friendly, and yet I see more and more kids talking about it in school, or toys for FNAF in the kids' aisle in stores, and... I just can't help but find it ironic and disturbing. I get it, kids watch YouTube and there's a lot of YouTube videos about FNAF. From the video game Let's Play or the Theory videos and they're entertaining. The designs of the video game are cool and unique and fun animal themed and it naturally draws the attention of kids. But that's what kind of makes it ironic and disturbing to me. Because the whole point of the overarching story is a mad scientist serial killer who uses these fun anthropomorphic machines to lure children to his restaurant. And he himself is dressed as a fun bunny mascot to lure them to his back room where he then kills them. And then kids are playing with the toys that look like those same animatronics. I feel like that completely undermines the whole cautionary tale, the whole point of protecting kids from these things. Things that look innocent and sweet, but have bad intentions. But my brother, who is a fan of FNAF, also made an excellent point. The video games themselves, which are considered a part of the indie horror genre, are probably the tamest horror games. And the new ones coming out of steel wool, I don't even think they classify as horror at all. You never see violent actions happening on screen, there's no gore, there's no violence. It's just a creepy atmosphere. There's some jump scares that might scare you. The real horror is in the lore, in the story, as you piece it together. That is what's disturbing, and it isn't portrayed in the games. So in that sense, I appreciate Cawthon for not depicting anything in his games or in the movie that is truly horrifying, especially since younger audiences are consuming this. Alright, rant over, let's talk about the movie. In 2015, after the release of Scott's two FNAF games, which were successful and popular, Warner Brothers announced they had acquired the rights to the FNAF movie. The movie went through a ton of ups and downs in pre-production. Just trying to get a script right was an impossible task. And of course it was! The lore of this franchise is insane! The film went through several directors, from Gil Kennan to Chris Columbus to finally Emma Tammy, who's the director of this film. It also changed from Warner Brothers to Blumhouse and is distributed by Universal Studios. Scott went through several scripts, constantly delaying the film's pre-production. And then production, obviously. That's how we ended up going from a film announced in 2015 to finally seeing it here in 2023, eight years later. And I totally get it. You can't really adapt the first video game to a direct movie, I mean in the video game you're just sitting in front of a few camera monitors and there's jump scares, that doesn't work as a movie. So then do you just tell the canon story of FNAF from beginning to end? Because that would give fans all of the answers, there wouldn't be any mystery left and it might not be satisfying. And which audience do you serve? The dedicated fans who've been following this forever or newcomers who know nothing about this? Which mysteries do you keep? What answers do you give? Do you stay in the same canon, the same universe? Do you do a spinoff? Which characters from the movie or the books do you focus on? There are so many variables. So much to sort out. And I think it's a miracle the film's plot was as cohesive as it was. And that's why I kind of roll my eyes when critics say the film doesn't make sense. Because like I said... It's a miracle it makes as much sense as it does. This movie was probably the most linear narrative thing that we've gotten from FNAF, besides the books, which I haven't read. That being said, it looks like the movies are doing their own thing, similar to paralleling the games and the books, but they're doing their own thing, which I think is probably the best direction to go down, considering how you want to appeal to the mystery of the franchise, but keep it familiar. The film itself, I personally found to be a triumph. It was nearly an impossible task to satisfy a hungry fan base that had been waiting for eight years and deep in the weeds of confusing lore. And the filmmakers managed to create a narrative that I found compelling, satisfying. Majority of fans that I've seen on the internet seem to agree. This was a successful new addition to the overall five nights at Freddy's space. And I recognize I could easily get lost in the weeds of trying to explain everything I liked and how the plot fits with the lore and every easter egg, all the nitty gritty. But what I think might be more interesting is seeing how horror elements and storytelling can be really powerful and be used to reveal the fears of our day and age. In the first episode of this podcast, Rilla FM's Chaplain Justin and I talked about John Wick and violence in media. I was so glad that was the first episode so that we could lay a foundation for how we can approach other difficult genres, like horror films. I think the conclusion Chaplain Jess and I made in that John Wick episode applies here. Use discernment and good judgment to know what has redeeming value and how a filmmaker may use the tools of that particular genre, like horror, to tell a powerful, meaningful story. I know there's a stigma against violence or horrific things in media, and rightfully so, I don't like subjecting myself to uncomfortable, gross things. But then again, life is uncomfortable, and sometimes we need to be uncomfortable in order to change. Horror is something we experience in the reality of life. How can we not address it through storytelling? But I do want to make a distinction here. In my opinion, there are two types of horror film in this genre. One I like far better than the other. There are films which use elements of horror to tell their stories, And there are films which are purely for the sake of the horror. Hyperviolence, blood, gore, creative kills, those tend to be aspects of the side of horror that I don't enjoy. I don't see a lot of value in them. I don't think they're very deep. I think they tend to make more money because they're cheap to produce and people just consume them. Addicted to the adrenaline of being scared and wanting that gross factor upping the ante. I'm not a person who enjoys that. But I do love movies like... Alien, The Shining, Silence of the Lambs, movies that are scary, employ some horror elements, build suspense, make you grip your couch and scream at the TV, but there's something deeper to their stories too. A great example of this is actually a recent success from Blumhouse called Megan. It is kind of a horror film, but uses the elements of horror to represent the current concerns over AI technology and how it's impacting our kids. Horror films or films involving horror can tap into both the universal human subconscious fears and typically reflect a fear of the current culture. Five Nights at Freddy's is coming from the mind of a family-loving devoted Christian man who loves the supernatural and science fiction. I think it makes total sense why the themes in his games and his movie are centered on family and protecting kids. I feel like right now more than ever, there is a concern rising over the protection of our kids. Something I noticed while watching the movie, and I don't think this was done intentionally, but just came out naturally, is how the tactics of William Afton compare to real-world kidnappers. William uses himself, disguised in a costume of a fun, innocent yellow bunny, to lure kids. He uses his grown-up daughter, a young woman who looks trustworthy. He also uses kids to lure kids. These are all similar tactics to the real-world kidnappers and traffickers, Preying on people's vulnerability and innocence. I doubt this was intentional, but it only reminded me, as I was watching the film, how important it is to protect kids. At the heart of this movie, we see Michael, who is so overcome with grief and regret in not protecting his brother, that he focuses on the past instead of focusing on his little sister, who needs that same protection. And obviously, by the end of the movie, he redeems himself, he saves his sister with the help of Vanessa, who is being abused, manipulated, and controlled. She, too, needed protection. But now she's finally standing up and protecting Abby. This movie, far more than any of the games or books, in my opinion, emphasizes and drives home the overarching theme of family and protecting kids. That's personally why I think there's a depth to Five Nights at Freddy's that may be overlooked. Maybe it was unintended. Maybe it just happened from Scott Cawthon's subconscious. But however it happened... I appreciate it. And I think it's incredible seeing how God has been using Scott Cawthon in probably the most unlikely and unconventional way. He went from an indie video game developer to internet legend to a blockbuster filmmaker. Even if you don't like the movie or anything Five Nights at Freddy's, I hope you learned something new from this story and gained some new insight on this bizarre cultural phenomenon. The Real Review Podcast, hosted by Zoe Moody, is a part of the Real FM Podcast Network. You can listen to more Real FM podcasts or Real FM radio on the Real FM app or at real.fm.